Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. It's December 10th, 1989, Tokyo, Japan. A sold-out crowd is in the Tokyo Korokuen Hall. 2,300 fans surround a wrestling ring. The music stills. The crowd cranes its collective neck. And from the left, a woman climbs in with big 80s hair and a big attitude to match. In this corner, Princess Delta Dawn. So I'm in Japan, and my opponent at that time was Despina Montagas, and she's another very hard, aggressive wrestler. This is her, Princess Delta Dawn. And in the other corner, Despina Montagas. Equally big hair, equally big attitude. The two women swagger into the middle of the ring, and the referee attaches them to each other with what looks like a long leather strap. So we're tied together at the wrists, and there's no way out. The only way out is winning the match. If you are a fan of pro wrestling, you're probably familiar with strap matches. If you're not, they are just one of the many concept matches you see in the ring. But the idea is generally the same. A strap match is just as any other match. You still have to pin the person a three count in order to win that match. Okay, they're all tied up. Don on one side, Despina on the other, the ref backs out of the way, and they go. They start by using the strap to reel each other in, and okay, honestly, I can barely watch. There's a few different things that you can definitely use. You could wrap that strap around their neck and flip them around. (laughs) Um, There's chokes that you can do without the referee necessarily seeing. You can tie them up in the strap and and stick them in a hold and get them stuck that way to to some extent. In the minutes that follow, Don and Despina seem to manage to do all of these things and more. There are flips and kicks and moves that I do not know the names of. At one point, you can't see what's going on at all because Don has thrown Despina out of the ring. You can only tell where they are on the floor by the circle of fans that trails around after them as they brawl. Finally, Princess Delta Dawn, in her black leotard, rises triumphant to a chorus of delighted boos. Princess Delta Dawn's actually a heel in Japan, a bad guy in wrestling, the character you love to hate. And Dawn, she loved Every minute of it, too. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. In the late 80s, the World Wrestling Federation, or WWF, was a phenomenon. 
They changed their name to World Wrestling Entertainment in the 2000s. I guess they didn't want endangered pandas stealing their spotlight anymore. Back then, across North America, each weekend, everyone was tuned in to watch the oiled muscles and melodrama of the world's top wrestlers. This was the era when Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, and Macho Man Randy Savage became household names. But the WWF was not the only game in town. There were hundreds of other wrestling competitions and touring troops. There still are. In the 80s and 90s, the place to make it if you were a woman was Japan. While women's wrestling could often be treated like a sideshow in North America, in Japan, women's wrestling was where the action was and the fans. So for Delta Dawn, Japan was always the goal. Dawn Murphy. Believe it or not, Princess Delta Dawn is not her real name. Grew up in the small community of Island Cash in Prince George, B.C. The Cash, C-A-C-H-E, no longer exists. It was flooded out years ago. What's left is now a park. Growing up here in Prince George, Dawn fell in love with wrestling. Wrestling did more than give her a career and take her around the world. This sport and the larger-than-life character she played in the ring, it actually helped her connect with who she really is. An identity that had been separated from her for most of her life. Wrestling is, it is a sport, but it also is a bit of the theatrics and being able to really find that character that you really always wanted to be. Producer Betsy Trumpener met up with Dawn in the park where the cash used to be to record her story. Dawn will take it from here. We weren't the richest community. Uh, the cash, it was a one of the more poverty-stricken areas, and it was uh, easier to um, stay there with the income that my parents were making at the time. Um, it was a trailer park that was situated uh, just over by the river on under Fraser Bridge, and um, there was a little store and that was just across from the trailer park, and I remember it was just always a a cool little thing to do to run over to the store and run back. And meanwhile, there's trains in between, and it was something that was probably so dangerous, but the kids of the trailer park really managed to function fairly well, uh, no matter how dangerous it was. The bridge was right beside us, the train's right beside us, the river's right beside us. So this is one of the wonderful trains that we heard um, from that day. Now it's still here to this day. When we were here and living here in the cache in all of our little homes here, we still had those sounds behind us and um, the smells of the mill and that wood and the sawdust and we were so used to that um, having the mills in our backyard kind of thing um, really didn't bother us. And it was a form of livelihood for our parents that were living here. It would, would have been cool to show you where we actually resided and where um, the mills were because looking at it now, of course, parents would be afraid for their children with the trains, the river and that sort of thing, but it, we were so used to it. 
So this is literally what happened when one particular year is that my mom was, you know, working around the house or whatever. And I'm used to my dad leaving early in the morning to, to go to the mill. And one particular time, the crazy little toddler that I am managed, I don't know how, because I was about two or three years old, but I managed to get out of the house and I followed my dad to work. <laughs> And his friends ended up uh, grabbing him in the mill one day and they said, uh, Pete, uh, we think your daughter's here. Uh, there's a little kid running around with diapers out there. <laughs> so lo and behold, dad comes out and sure enough, it's his daughter. So it started at a very young age to be that courageous and, and fearless. <laughs> Living in the cache was, was absolutely beautiful, but I always wanted something more. And I really had um, a really dire need to know what's out there in the world and really wanted um, to show them that I could be something famous or to do something that was, that was impossible and to travel um, so I I was really wanting something better so I always worked really hard at um, trying to get more than the cash before wrestling speed skating was one of the one things that I truly loved and I really didn't think that I would ever come out of speed skating why did my parents decide on skating? Probably because we're in the north. My dad was always really great about trying to make a skating rink in the backyard for me. And we had such cold weather that it came so easily. So I think that's why we just naturally went to skating. I think right from my younger toddler age, right up until my teens, I was um, winning races and uh, breaking records. Uh, nationally. My family weren't rich so my um, equipment wasn't as fancy as everyone else's and but I managed to survive with what I had and the speed skates I had you know I remember um, competing against girls that had top-of-the-line skates and I used, it used to always make me so jealous that I'll you know I'm thinking in my head oh I'll never win because I didn't have skates that were as nice as theirs or gear that was as nice as theirs. I remember my mom made me a speed skating outfit for the oval, which is outdoor. So you really need a good quality outdoor outfit to be skating outdoors in the minus, you know, 20 below weather. And I remember my mom made me this whole entire body outfit one time and they had the stripes that normally run down the sides and my competitors had these beautiful spandex outfits and their lines were so precise and you know beautiful and there I come and my mom you know <laughs> I love her to death but some of my lines on on my legs were not as straight as my competitors they were a bit off but you know what it didn't matter it everything is all in your head because I would um, still break records with that gear. Old skates or not, I was still breaking records.
entering into skating, it was difficult for me. I honestly, being um, an Aboriginal person in a, a non-Aboriginal sport, I felt intimidated because even though I am I am a half breed and my dad is non-native, my mom is native. I still uh, resemble more of a First Nation person than I do um, on my dad's side as a non-native person. I I actually have a figure skating picture where um, we were all again in our skating uniforms and um, it was a cute it was a cute little uniform and. It was the little dresses and we had the little white palms that um, you put in your hands to hide your hands that kept your hands warm. And that picture that they took of us, I was the only brown face in that particular picture. My mom is Lake Babine and my grandpa was actually Lake Babine as well. My grandmother is uh, from Takla. Grandma was very tough, a very strong woman. And uh, so a lot of people say that I uh, really resemble my grandma a lot. Just her temper and, and her, her drive. She was just a very strong, uh, independent woman. And grandpa met her um, in Burns Lake. And uh, grandpa was a hereditary chief as well. So they met somewhere in that particular area and started a family. My mom is sadly uh, one of the children of the 60s swoop era, residential school era. Mom had siblings that all of them ended up being uh, put into foster homes. So it was really tough um, for my mom and her family becoming a family. And um, from that point on, my mom had a lot of resentment um, towards her Aboriginal ancestry and really believed what they were being told at that time was that they were not valued. And so when I came into their life, um, mom worked really hard at um, me living the non-native way. And it's something that my grandpa also um, taught my mom as well, but um, that's something that mom really kind of hid from me is my um, Aboriginal ancestry side, which was um, sometimes difficult because I did feel like I was kind of going through life not knowing who half, half of me was. My grandpa also adored um, professional wrestling long before me. I was a fan just like everybody else and really loved meeting the wrestlers. And so naturally I would always take pictures with the wrestlers just for myself. But then I came up with the idea that what if I started a business that I could take pictures of the wrestlers with whoever wanted to take pictures with them and I could provide them that service. So I went to City Hall, got my little business license at 13 years old, I think I was, and started my uh, little business of uh, taking pictures of the wrestlers at that time. 
But while I was doing that, the promoter got to know me fairly well and realized my background. That I wasn't just a real wrestling fan. I um, enjoyed wrestling, but he realized my sporting background, where it stemmed from speed skating. And um, he recognized that there might be some hidden talents there that could uh, transfer over to wrestling. So he ended up approaching me one time um, when they were in town. And he said, you know, maybe one summer, if when your parents allow you might be able to come to Vancouver and do some training. Would you be interested in doing some training? And of course, I'm like, yes, let's do this tomorrow. <laughs> I was 15. Our days consisted of uh, doing a workout, of course, before get getting into the ring. He had us running for a bit to get our adrenaline up. And then um, once our hearts were beating and, and we were ready to fly, that's when he started um, scheduling us in the ring. So for the rest of the day, we were in the ring um, taking turns. So two at a time, uh, 20 minutes at a time. After moving around the first five minutes in a ring and then trying to capture your breath, it's, it's really difficult. We would get to these states that you would just literally black out and it's just from pushing so hard to um, try and make it to that time limit, which was our first was a 10 minute time limit. And usually right around the mark as soon as our bell rang and uh, we were done, literally we were on the side of the mat, just totally blacked out because we are just, our wind was just completely knocked out of us because we had to um, withstand so much movement in the ring. It was just very, very tiring. So when you see those wrestlers um, lock up or they, they throw on um, some leg holes or arm holes, what they're trying to do is trying to gain some breath again and so that they could be able to um, make it through the rest of the match. So that's what you see a lot of the times is you'll, they, they'll be tired, but they'll grab a hold of something in hopes that that will uh, suffice until the time of their match is up. I remember laying on the mat blacked out. I would literally open my eyes and my eyes are just black and I'm like, I can't see anything and just so tired. But I would, I would get up from that mat and as soon as I was able to catch my breath again, I was like, let's do it again. <laughs> so as, as tired as I was, I was just so interested in learning every aspect of it that there was no, I wasn't going to give up. I just loved it too much that I didn't want to give it up. Back in the 80s when I started getting um, involved in the sport, it is a tough, tough sport and it is known to be a man's sport. So for women coming into the business, it was sometimes hard. Um, you had to put up with a lot and um, they really didn't want um, women in the sport. It's not all men. Not all men were like this. Um, 
so the few would stand out that weren't too thrilled that that women were you know starting to take some of those times and matches in the ring so we've had various matches where we had mixed men and women tag team matches and if they're body slamming you you better be prepared to you know be lifted that high and thrown from that uh, height and onto your back and be able to break your falls so that you're not injuring yourself. The very first time that I was wrestling would have been in Cloverdale and it was anywhere from about two to three hundred people that uh, I first walked out into and um, it was still pretty intimidating and my my heart was racing <laughs> my heart was racing and I was worried am I going to be able to do the right thing am I am I going to be so scared and just freeze and and not know what to do and but when you jump up in that ring and you grab those ropes and you give it a stretch uh, it just seems like everything just comes back to you it feels so comfortable and feels it feels like home to me. I knew what I needed to get done. My first match wasn't very long, thankfully. I did win. Even though it was it was intimidating and scary, I made it through and to throw your hands up on your first match and address the fans, it was a good feeling for sure. Going into a fight, even if it was um, like our small circuits here when I first started out, it never changed from from that time to going into the big arenas. It, it didn't matter. Before every fight, I had butterflies. It was the biggest butterflies. Um, I had butterflies when I was speed skating and before a, a race, a big event. But the butterflies that I had when I was wrestling... Um, were much more than that and to the point where I would feel sick to my stomach before I went out to um, a match. It's not always easy starting out at the beginning and uh, people glorify it and and think that um, we live we were living in these fancy hotels or motels but when you just start out in the business you're starting out very small and I remember times where we would um, sometimes have to literally stay in the arena waiting at the arena that we were going to wrestle in and we would be literally sleeping on bleachers or you know sleeping on chairs because we just didn't have a place you know we'd pull in from the road from one location and move into another location I was probably about 16 years old when I got on the road and started traveling on the road there was no other First Nation women or men in general that were 16 and wrestling I would have to say um I was pretty unique, yes, yes. <laughs> in, in regards to finding my name and trying to determine what that would be, the promoter that I was working for at the time, which is Al Tomko, he threw around some ideas and he really wanted to try and capture the Indigenous side of my background. He recognized that I was from Prince George and he, he recognized 
called when they would travel here and even go further north that it was uh, predominant First Nations in this area. So he played around with a few different names, but this one here came to him fairly quickly, which is which was Delta Dawn, and that was because at the time I was living in Delta when I was doing the training, and my name was Dawn. <laughs> my real name is Dawn. Then basically he just kind of threw princess in front of it. So that's where the name actually derived from uh, from that point on was Princess Delta Dawn. And we just kind of rolled with it. And then we just had to try and um, make sure that uh, the rest of my wrestling persona kind of followed that. Delta Dawn for Prince George, British Columbia, weighs in at 130 pounds in her third year now of professional wrestling. Oh, that was hey, a good weight drop going there. to work here. One more. Delta Dawn seems to know what she's doing in there. With Al talking to me about my Indigenous side and, and rolling with that name, it really helped me because not growing up with your um, identity and your culture, um, I really wanted to know what that was because I wanted to learn more about um, what it was to be Indigenous and I really wanted to represent it well and showcase my territory uh, for everyone. So from that point on, I think that's where uh, I really started to learn um, and and uh, pay more attention and put more focus onto uh, my Indigenous side and what that all entailed. So part of my regalia is um, my headdress. My headdress was um, given to me and passed down um, from another chief that was um, in the north here and given to my mom and um, my mom gave it to me. But it was uh, a relative um, from my mom's side that uh, was transferred down to. So my, my headdress means um, a lot to me and anytime no matter where I was if a feather fell I'd always um, make sure to collect my feather um, because every one of those feathers are important for me I was actually very proud of it and very proud as a woman to be wearing a headdress and it's naturally not for women either but because it was passed down through family and given to me. I think that maybe that might be why that uh, there was really no um, comments or anything against it. I mean, there's so much respect that goes into a headdress that I'm absolutely honoured and proud of it and, and took care of it. When I came out um, into the ring, I felt really empowered because I had my wrestling regalia on and it was my wrestling headdress that really stood out for me and it it just stood loud and proud. It really set the mood when I would prepare to come out into the ring. It was absolutely empowering. Not only did I feel it, but the audience felt it for sure as well. One of the songs that I came out to is Cherokee Nation, which isn't my culture, but the song and, and what it's all about is still the same empowerment on what I 
um, hoped that I could showcase and show everyone when I did come out for the match and into the ring. Took away our native tongue. My Aboriginal ancestry, I feel, was taken away from me for my younger portion of my life that I had so much to catch up to. So when I was gifted to, to have that, to be honoured with that headdress and, and for me to be able to adorn it and having my headdress and having it in my career as a wrestler um, means more to me than anyone could possibly know. So this was a match here in Prince George and it was quite a big event because it was a showcase event for for me because it was a championship match and I happened to, to be in the ring wrestling my uh, female competitor and her tag team partner ended up jumping in the ring and threw me into the ropes and did a body slam but then also uh, picked me up and hit me into the turnbuckle and when I came out of that turnbuckle and lifted my head it was nothing but blood everywhere and it was a quite a big cut that it scared everyone and including myself but it was her male tag team partner that did it so of course everyone was not impressed and everyone was in an uproar in the audience because this is my hometown um, it's a championship match and I was doing absolutely uh, really well and was on top of everything until this particular moment and um, my grandpa happened to be <laughs> at this match and my grandpa is wheelchair uh, ridden he has been for years and but that uh, that doesn't stop my grandpa he I, I think I get quite a bit of my spirit from my grandpa and and the fight and he wheeled his wheelchair up to the mat and he's banging on the mat, upset at the referee for allowing this sort of thing to happen to his granddaughter. And that's my granddaughter, you hurt my granddaughter. I'm worried for my grandpa because he is in a wheelchair and I'm worried that he's gonna get hit by, you know, maybe one of the other wrestlers that are walking around the ring or even my opponent. So here I have, you know, just blood racing down my face and, um, there was so much blood coming down through over my eyes and, and everything that I could barely see. But it inspired me to not give up. And my, my goal that day was to win that match. And um, that's definitely exactly what I did. I won that match. I had to represent for Prince George and then there's just no other way of um, coming out of that ring the winner. Casey here. Coming up, Princess Delta Dawn gets tactical. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, 
and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. Not what you usually see on All-Star Wrestling. We've got a tag team match, and you're looking at Delta Dawn. Delta Dawn from Prince George, British Columbia. In the opposite corner, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Some of the, the intense moves that we did, you really do have to practice. So you would practice those, those moves with your opponent for sure um, because you want to make sure that when the match does happen that you're not going to be hurting one another. There was one that was called a uh, Ferris wheel and basically I threw my opponent into the ropes. They would come flying back out at me in a standing situation and I would literally twist myself sideways, grab them and spin them and it would fall into a backbreaker. It's something that you really have to get your timing down. Delta Dawn, very popular here in British Columbia, particularly on the road. Has a lot of fans throughout BC. And then there was other moves where you're jumping around their neck and pulling them down into like a side fall, which again could be really dangerous. Well, I can tell you that the fans definitely do not like Wonder Woman. Another one of those mass wrestlers. Seems to be a fad again at the moment. Um, some of the things that I would do that were some of my favorite things to do was um, grabbing the hair of my opponent. So they, they would be knocked down um, at first. And I would literally walk up to them and grab them by the hair. And so they would stand up with me. So the thing that they had to do there is they have to hold my hands. Otherwise, you're not going to have any hair left. Because if you don't hold my hands, I'm literally just holding on to your hair. So, But one of the, my favorite moves that I absolutely loved, and people still love it to this day, is watching me grab their hair and swing them around in a circle with their face facing the mat and swinging them in a full 360 degrees and throwing them on the mat um, on their face. That was one of them. Look at this. Nice move by Delta Don. Now with head scissors. And as she flew back, I would um, do my Ferris wheel and backbreaker on her and then try and get her up off the mat so that I can take her mask off. So um, as much as I could wind her as possible. And then the goal was to try and take that mask off and to see who she was behind that mask. Watching very carefully, Delta Don with a good command so far in this match. It is a duration match. And again, Delta Don trying to take that mask off. So um, having her up against the ropes and, and pulling and tugging at that mask. And then if that didn't work, just grab the mask and throw her again. <laughs> That'll slow down Delta Don a little in the meantime. So the Little Cash Girl started here in BC locally, but as I grew and, and progressed, my resume started getting bigger and better. And so I progressed from BC to Alberta, to Winnipeg, to Ontario, and it just moved along nationally. Um, and then once I basically got to Ontario, my goal was to make it to Japan. I wanted to wrestle in Japan, maybe because it's, it, it is um, 
it was really predominant women wrestling there and they actually had their own um, company in Japan which was um, All Japan Women's Wrestling. So I started traveling to Japan when I was 17. So it was um, definitely scary to be traveling the world at such a young age but I was really uh, um, proud of the fact that um, this is that little girl that was once in the cash going over to Japan and, you know, walking into these arenas with, you know, 10,000 people sometimes. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> So it was huge to come out into that audience and it was it could be very intimidating if you weren't prepared for it. And so just the noise, just the vibration of that Coliseum or the arenas that we were at, you could just feel it. You could as soon as you walked out of your dressing room and into that audience, you could um, definitely feel the energy. So I would get an entourage, so they would walk alongside you because Japan is is very um, active for professional wrestling and so that entourage not only helped us get into the rink but they kept us safe from um, the wrestling fans themselves to make sure that we were able to safely make it from our dressing room to the ring because fans would um, have weapons, they would uh, bring weapons. I got hit many a times with the um, wrestling program. <laughs> They'd roll up the wrestling program and, and try and swap me as I walked by. That didn't help. <laughs> Our entourage would bring us out and into the ring. There's many ways you could get into the ring. You could jump on the ring, you could crawl up the steps or jump up the steps or roll into the ring or you can get thrown into the ring. <laughs> I, I preferred throwing quite a few of my uh, opponents into the ring. But mind you, I did enjoy throwing them out of the ring too. <laughs> also on the uh, outskirts of the ring is also photographers. And there were tons. You know, normally you would see maybe one or two photographers, um, even in a local event here. But in Japan, because wrestling is so big and so major, um, they were literally all around the mat. There were so many that the lights that that, um, that would that would flash even during our wrestling would even blind us. There was photographers around all the time, especially outside the ring. Um, as you exited the dressing rooms, they would follow you back to your hotel. They'd sometimes be um, waiting for you at your hotel when you left your hotel. I mean, you were an absolute star there. When you walk out into that audience, you could be who you wanted to be. You, you can you can turn into that person that you really wanted to showcase and really turn it loud and maximize it to however you felt that you could. And it really did help for the release of all that frustration and anger and 
finding that indigenous fearless woman and really letting it out and and getting that roar out that she desperately wanted to for so many years and here she was she was finally letting it loose I knew that I had an opportunity to be who I wanted for that particular moment and I was able to pull out all of these different emotions and strength and basically I think it was just stuff that was probably bottled up within me that I wanted to get out and I now had an, uh, an opportunity for where this could be and it felt like a really good healthy release was to be able to do this in the ring. Being able to, to um, become somebody different, it was real therapy, it was to go and release all of this uh, anxiety or fear or anger or whatever it may be and I and I did you know I had I I honestly had that a lot of that within me I was angry about um, not identifying with my culture there were two different people one in Canada and and one in Japan and my one in Canada I was um, the respectful princess um, indigenous little female wrestler that everyone expected and when I got to Japan I was able to add more to that. I really wanted to live it loud and really maximize who Princess Delta Dawn was and my gimmick at that time was I had two seven-foot Burmese pythons. One was called Precious, and my other uh, snake was called Destiny, and they were both about seven feet long and about 50 to 75 pounds apiece. A lot of people wonder about the snakes and how that derives with my First Nation culture, and I have to say they don't. Again, this is something that Al just kind of picked up, and it was a weird combination. When I started wrestling, I just had uh, an infatuation for snakes. I was definitely a unique character by having snakes and being First Nation and being a woman. So it was kind of the Jake the, Jake the Snake being traditional. <laughs> the Japanese people were actually very afraid. <laughs> Uh, very afraid of me so when I when I said earlier that you're able to become who you wanted to be so um, I completely changed into because I was I I had to play the villain um, in Japan you naturally are the villain because uh, we are are the outer towners so I, I meant business when I uh, walked into that ring so you you could hear me roar you could hear the thunder in my voice as I came out into the audience. You could hear the pride in me. So my snakes would come with me to Japan and be part of my regalia and come out in the ring with me. And so they would be just draped around my shoulders. Japan really loved it. They loved the that concept because it happened to be year of the snake when I was going there. 
Um, but really the snakes would just be there just to come in and um, be on my shoulders. And then once we got um, into the ring, they would be put back into their snake bags and my team um, that were ringside would um, basically babysit my snake <laughs> for me. The Japanese were really fearful of the snakes. It really did scare um, many of the Japanese and um, their their seats were empty when I came rolling out. <laughs> they would get up and run. <laughs> there was one particular time that I was fighting a championship match and the Japanese girls that I were that I was going against, which is Chigusa and As Asaka. Asuka was she she was always fearful of snakes and she really feared getting in that ring and I happened to wear my snake into the to the ring this particular match and she got a little close and if the snakes feel it and they sense it they are automatically going to be attracted to it so um, unfortunately my snake just got too close to her and managed to uh, swing over around her and ended up constricting her. And that was a scary, very scary moment because my snake has never constricted anybody, uh, nor myself. So because uh, the snake knows me very well, I, I had to do a lot of talking and a lot of touching, feeling the snake, you know, all through wrapped around his body and, and just feeling him and trying to tell the the girl to calm down and finally he ended up uh, letting go and and unrestricted from her but uh, it was a scary moment and all it, it took some caressing that's all it took thankfully it really gave me a lot of strength um, going to Japan and being the first First Nation woman um, to go there and and to win championships and and to go there with my headdress um, was absolutely amazing and something that I'll always be proud of because it represents my love for my grandpa. Um, so for me to be able to bring that to Japan and share that with the fans of Japan, and even though I was a villain in Japan, there were still a lot of uh, people that followed me and, and that uh, were just inspired, whether I was a villain or not, which was really nice to see that they, they just wanted to learn um, who that First Nation person was and what it was all about. So it was really nice to see that um, people came around for that. My goal was to make it to Japan, and um, if I was going to retire, the one thing that I said that I wanted to do was I wanted to wrestle in Japan, and then maybe I would consider retiring. I started traveling to Japan when I was 17, and I ended my year in Japan, I believe, at 21. To finally resign from wrestling, uh, for one, leaving Japan, I think, was the absolute hardest thing for me to do. And to um, come back to Canada, because you, you're, for one, in Japan, you're 
seen as such a star immediately. Before I left to Japan, I was um, waitressing. And when I came back, I um, went back into waitressing. So to come back and be a regular person was odd to me. It was really odd. I miss those times. I miss those times. I miss those feelings. I honestly feel like I could jump in the ring even to this day and it will still come naturally to me. That's how comfortable it feels to me. I was very fortunate that I didn't have any major breaks or any surgery requirements compared to some of my fellow um, wrestling comrades. Um, thankfully, I have not um, broke anything in the ring um, other than a severe concussion, um, hitting a turnbuckle um, and blowing a knee out uh, that thankfully I didn't need a surgery for. But it was definitely hard getting jeans on, let me tell you, <laughs> when your knee is exploded. Um, but Internally, though, in, internally I have had damage um, due to the amount of falls and hits that you, you take. It just has taken a toll internally on my body. So now I've come home. I'm Princess Delta Dawn in Japan, and that time now is ending, and I have to come home and put that person to the side and kind of get back into my real life. And so when I did that, I, I kind of didn't want to give up on who this other person was now that I've had the opportunity to live it in Japan. And um, I was working at a department store and um, combination department store waitressing and an opportunity came up to work for my First Nation. So I applied and in hopes that getting into this First Nation, I would be able to learn more about um, who I was and better understand who I was. So um, I applied for the position and ended up getting the position. Um, so started learning uh, not only my culture, but other cultures as well. And I'm being elected to band council and for two terms and um, still sticking with it from, from there on. When I was approached by the BC Sports Hall of Fame, um, I was absolutely blown away because I didn't think um, I was at that level at all. And basically they wanted to know if I wanted to participate and um, transfer um, some of my regalia and equipment over um, to the gallery and showcase it so that um, it could inspire other young children or teens to see that it, it is possible. It is po possible to fulfill your dreams. Then, of course, not only did they put my um, equipment and regalia in the gallery, but they also invited me down for the grand opening of the Indigenous Gallery. And that in, a, in itself was absolutely amazing. I was absolutely in tears because I know the blood, sweat and tears that went into all of that. Um, so it, it will always be near and dear to my heart. And I'm really glad that, uh, that there is a gallery like that that could show the world um, of what every one of those little individuals' um, dreams are all about.
when I seen when I seen my gear in that um, gallery and to also stand there with my other fellow inductees and for them to put their arms around me, I, I feel like that's family. I started off my younger years not knowing my Aboriginal side or my Aboriginal ancestry, but 18 years later, here I am um, now showcasing it to the to me for the entire world to see um, was absolutely um, the the best thing I think that could be given to any Native child that. Um, didn't have that for the first part of their life. To sit here and hear all of these these sounds now and remember looking back, I remember being so young thinking, is this all this will be? to travel across the country. And now to be back here, I am so fortunate and so blessed. And no matter what anyone says about the cash or what it was like, I am absolutely um, honored to, to be a part of this piece of land and to have grown up here and to be able to uh, travel across the world and come back to this. It's absolutely beautiful, and it does feel like I've come full circle. My name is Dawn Murphy from Prince George, BC, and I'm a proud half-breed of Ukrainian carrier ancestry, and I grew up to become a professional wrestler that went under the name Princess Delta Dawn and I was once a star in Tokyo, Japan. That doc was produced by Betsy Trumpener. It was mixed and edited by Alison Cook. Special thanks this week to Mickey Cowan at CBC British Columbia. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Sherry Okeke, Kent Hoffman, Tanera McLean, and Andrew Friesen. Althea Manassen is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.